0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Wharton Finds Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizards Chief Affiliates. We're going to have a really fascinating show. We have uh, two great guests talking with us about the value rotation, some of the things happening in the markets. Uh, but Professor, I know you've been talking about similar themes. You've been talking about the Fed. Let's kick it off with your view of what you heard from the Fed and your, your outlook here.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, I thought that it was a hawkish uh, conference. He ref- uh, Powell referred to inflation a lot he also admitted it's worse than expected um and it is much worse than expected by the way we got the pce which is something that is we all know the fed watches uh carefully and although it wasn't much above expectation i compared it to the december forecast for 2000 and, and uh, 21 and we were a half point higher than what they thought the inflation was going to be so it's ramping up and again you look at um Uh, fuel prices, you look at oil at record highs. I checked the wholesale price on gasoline. It is now above the peak that it was at in October. There's always a two- to three-week catch-up. That's going to be moving up. So the inflation news is not going to get any better. I did note there was some relief on the uh, ECI. The Employment Cost Index came in a couple tenths lower than expected, but wages lag um the inflation rate that's not a a leading indicator of inflationary uh, pressures um uh in there it is it is the commodities it is oil it is the shortages it is the talk of people having to pass on higher prices and that chatter is really now pushed up the estimate at to at least four and almost five increases now again you know, I think they're going to have to go eight increases and maybe more, depending on how bad inflation actually gets. But, um, you see that steadily marking, uh, going up. Um, did Apple, uh, great earnings last night? Did it save the tech sector? Uh, maybe a little bit. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the basic macro forces of rising interest rates is, uh, is, is certainly going to affect uh, really all all the stocks and cause, in my opinion, that rotation that you mentioned, Jeremy, um, to continue.
1: Yeah, you you were on on CNBC on Monday calling for sort of bear markets in the Nasdaq as as and it's it's you know it's come down a, a good amount uh, obviously. How when you yeah. think about where it could go from here through the rest of the year, what's your your current sense?
2: Yeah, we're a few percent. Although I do see a rally here this morning. We were off, but I, I think that pressure's there. We're pretty near that 20%. Um, We're pretty near the 10% correction on the S&P. You know, S&P's tech is probably down five or six. I don't have the exact stat. You know, this this is pretty much what I expected to happen. Uh, I I think it'll continue to happen. Um, As the inflation numbers, we can get two inflation numbers before the March meeting. uh, And those are the most important ones to inform the situation um uh, and whether they continue but uh the commodity indices are going up they're still going up even if you exclude the oil the oil being the most important one is going up these are sensitive uh, indicators and we're going to have to see how the supply shortages uh with uh in the face of big demand uh is going to be continuing to push home prices higher i mean home prices are higher i mean take a look at the case shower index that uh Uh, We got on Tuesday still moving up at not as rapid a clip as before, but still a very, very strong clip. So I don't see any of the real indicators on inflation cooling down. The Fed has got to concentrate on that. And,
1: uh, you know, next
2: week will be really important to see whether those uh, inflationary pressures uh, continue to move those interest rates higher.
1: We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Uh, so for the rest of the show, we have Wes Gray, CEO, Founder, Chief Investment Officer, Alpha Architect, uh, a, a, a friend of the program. And we're uh, joined by Harris Kupperman, who's Founder, CIO, Praetorian Capital Hedge Fund, where he does uh, a lot of interesting writing also about the markets at Adventures in Capitalism. Uh, I've been following Cuppy for quite a while, and he's been, been spot on on some of what's happening right now. Cuppy, welcome to Behind the Markets.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: Wes, how do you? How do you and Cuppy know each other? Are you both in in, uh, in the same location there now.
3: We
0: are. So so I have been a Cuppy fan for I don't even know since he started that blog, uh, and <laughs> and I, I followed I followed him on a, on a few trades that that you know didn't do so well, but I but most of his trades are amazing, and and now we both live in Puerto Rico. We're living the dream.
1: So cuppy, yeah, I, I reached out after your first piece earlier in January. i had been following you all of last year as well. Maybe came later than Wes, but uh, some fascinating things you've been writing about. And then we're spot on on your piece about the great rotation, uh, which sort of commenced right after you wrote it. I mean, it, it, it sort of moved like the day the day you wrote the piece, it started moving. What, tell us a little bit about where you think we are in the great rotation uh, as, as a lot of it started to to move in January.
3: So, I don't always get the timing right, uh, that th- that one was just lucky. But uh, the great rotation for me is uh, inflation picking up. And when inflation picks up, I think you're going to see the value stocks do very well. These things have been forgotten about for a decade. And I think you could also see um, the Ponzi stocks and the SaaS stocks and the high multiple techs. You know, those things are valued on earnings going out 10, 20 years into the future. I mean, the Ponzi stocks have no earnings and never will. And as these uh, companies uh, see uh, multiples compress and margins compress because of inflation, I think you're going to see uh, the prices uh, collapse. And really, that's what we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks. And we've seen my value stocks doing quite well, uh, energy, financials. Uh, you know, Pretty much the only thing that's not doing well for me right now is housing. And I think this rotation is going to continue. It's going to lead to a lot of volatility in the market. I think you know, really good uh, comparable is the fall and winter of uh, 20, uh, 2000, where you know tech really started falling apart and inflation started picking up, and it just kind of continued where inflation started accelerating and the value names just really outperformed uh, the old tech names. And uh, I think the main point I want to make is that the the overall market's going to be volatile, but I kind of think it's going to go nowhere. I think uh, the money is just going to flood into the old economy.
1: When you talk about the Ponzi's, you want to you you want to give a little bit more. What what has created this uh, sort of very high multiple stocks? Everybody's been talking about these price to sales greater than ten, greater than twenty. What is the the group that you think have have circled on creating a unique moment for the for what you call affectionately called the Ponzi's?
3: So, at all times, there's a couple of companies that. Um, mm will never be profitable. And they have big hopes and dreams. They could show you some uh, growth. What's, what's interesting is that over the last five years, these small little businesses that usually are small you know, pump and dumps, they've now uh, graduated into tens and sometimes hundreds of billions of market cap. They tend to be large consumer businesses, businesses that you and I have all heard of, but they really have no viable path to being profitable. The, the whole business plan is they take in investor capital and they subsidize consumers to use the product which is great for us, you know, because I get, you know, a cheap product. But in the end, you know, they're they're taking market share from the traditional companies that would normally be in these industries. And they're, they're taking this market share by giving the product away at a loss and hoping to make it up in volume. And, you know, we've seen this in a lot of these. I think one of the most glaring examples of a true Ponzi is uh, Peloton. I mean, for a year, everyone was stuck at home, uh, bored out of their wits with government stimmies. These guys couldn't make money in the best moment in time uh, for a stationary bike with an iPad. Uh, now here we are, and demand's collapsed because you actually go outside, you can go to your gym, you can do a lot of great things if you want to exercise. And if they couldn't make money when things are great, I mean, what are the odds they're going to make money now? I mean, if anything, the most recent results show that the losses are accelerating um you know the i'm not saying these guys went out there and tried to commit fraud but i am saying that insiders uh, sold a half billion dollars of stock knowing that there was no chance that this thing would ever be profitable
1: wes what are you watching on some of these uh this value rotation you focus a lot on the same the same segments
0: yeah i mean we we kind of play play both sides of the the field with uh value and then we also do momentum stuff um but but i'm kind of old school value uh I believe in gravity like uh, Cuppy does. So <laughs> I, I, I just don't call it the Ponzi sector, but I like his, uh, I like his description of, of these crazy companies that burn money on fire and, you know, give us free goods. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of aligned with the idea that, you know, I'm hoping value keeps, keeps going and I hope gravity continues to matter because I think that'll be favorable for firms that actually make money and do stuff.
1: Has momentum started rotating to value? Like the MSCI became a little bit deep, uh, more into value last it, sort of in last yep. year's early rebalance. Are, are you seeing that show up in some of your your signals?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And obviously, over the last three or four months here, there will be no you know Ponzi sector stocks. Obviously, in momentum, uh, it's going to be, all be rotating to obviously more value type names. So so I think very quickly we're, we're entering one of those uh, cross sections where Value's doing well, and now that they've been doing so well, momentum's starting to pick up there, so you got all, all stars aligned uh, moving in the direction of value. I mean, God only knows what the future holds, but if, if I keep Cuppy as my predictor of the future and the Oracle, you know, it could look good for everything value. So, copy
1: is the Tiger 40, I guess you talk about that group of hedge funds in, in sort of a camp of looking for these growth names. Are they going to start moving to value, too? Or are they going to be sticking with these? What, what is your sense that they believe in the compounder story, so or looking for growth
3: after growth? I mean, I, I don't know what they're thinking yet. They, uh, you know, they haven't <laughs> called me to tell me. <laughs> but... Um... You know, I, I wrote about – I wrote a blog post on my blog at adventuresincapitalism.com, and I, I wrote that, uh, you know, last year, uh, that was 2021, that was the year that uh, the Ponzi sector got obliterated. That's all the ARC names, the Kathy Woods names, you know, the, the, the companies that are blatant frauds or Ponzi's. You know, this is the year that uh, the more prosaic sort of companies get hit. These are the companies that – They're real businesses. Some of them are actually quite phenomenal businesses. They're just at crazy multiples, and those multiples will come back to earth. You know, gravity eventually works. And you know, we've seen this rotation out of these uh, names. I've called it the Tiger Forty because it's it's the forty largest positions owned by Tiger Global. Uh, And I have the utmost I have the utmost respect for the guys at Tiger. They put together a great track record. Um, It's just that everyone agrees with me and has bought the same names, and now all the hedge funds own the same forty names and there's no bids, and they can't get out. That's how you can have a situation where a lot of these names drop by 25 to 50% in three weeks. Uh, everyone wants out, and then the margin calls start. So uh, will these guys go into value? Yeah, probably. They like uh, earning incentive fees. That's where the opportunity is going to be. Uh, going back to what Wes was saying, look at all these value names. I mean, the market just got uh, hit hard, and a lot of these value names haven't had a downtick. Look at and Look at oil companies. Look at energy services. I mean – these things—they don't have down days. It, they, they just go up slower when the market gets hit. <laughs> Wes, you're on fire with these. <laughs> Let
1: Let's talk a little bit about oil because you you've been out there with some some views on how high oil can go that I've been following. And I put you in my, you know, the the multiple triple digits category of where can oil go. Maybe outline some of your oil thesis uh, if you have one, and, and what's what's driving the the oil prices here.
3: Sure, absolutely. I mean look uh oil is a global commodity supply and demand is all that matters um on the demand side uh you have six billion people on this earth that use hardly any energy per capita they all want to use the same amount of energy that i do in the first world There's a billion of us using quite a lot of energy and those people are going to catch up to the rest of us uh, it's called an s curve and they're right in uh, the accelerating part of the s curve this is uh you know, going to see dramatic growth in terms of per capita usage from these six billion people. And I think uh, oil demand is going to accelerate over the next couple of years. It's historically been around one to two million barrels a day of uh, growth every year, just about, even during recessions. Um, And I think it's going to accelerate maybe three, maybe four. uh, Who knows? Maybe it could even be five a year of growth. And, you know, on on the flip side of this, uh, on the supply side, there hasn't been any CapEx really since 2014. Uh, You know, Everyone's been expecting that U.S. shale, which is short cycle, can just ramp up and you know f- plug the hole because these uh, long-term projects just aren't getting funded and uh, you know, they're not coming into production. But the honest truth is, and we, we've seen this, um, if the U.S. government's going to block pipelines and the U.S. government's going to pull permits and the U.S. government's going to talk about excess profits tax and carbon taxes and all sorts of other uh, hindrances to ramping up production, well, there's going to be no production response from the U.S. and you know, the long, long cycle uh, production, if you start it now, maybe in five years you get to oil. And so um, where's all the supply going to come from? Uh, everyone's hoping OPEC has a plan, but they're almost tapped out. And I think that's what you're seeing in, in the price of oil. It just doesn't pull back. Uh, I think it's going to overshoot dramatically. You have these guys, uh, you know – Biden and uh, Larry Fink, that really do want to have an oil crisis. Uh, they think that if you take oil to 500, it's going to accelerate the transition to green energy. And they're probably right, because green energy will be more uh, cost competitive. But the problem is that a lot of people are going to suffer during that process, uh, but I don't intend to suffer. I own a lot of oil.
1: There, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal today, I think, comparing tobacco to oil. And saying, you know, tobacco stocks were a, a pretty good investment as even with the sort of lowering demand, it, it, they were able to, to reinvest profits and not put as much spending on marketing. Uh, and and do you see that as, as part of the oil thesis that there's going to be much less capex or there already is a lot less capex, which is why, you know, there's less supply on, on the market today?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's be a lot less capex. I think it's a lot like the tobacco stocks. Uh, they were unloved, underappreciated uh you know, my first big win of my investing career was in uh, the year 2000, where I bought Philip Morris at an 18 percent dividend yield that I think it was a five bagger. Um, you know, I, but I, I would say not to buy the oil stocks here. I mean, they're going to be starved of capital. They're going to have government interference. They're going to have all sorts of taxation and problems. You know, they just canceled a bunch of uh, drilling permits in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, why do you want to deal with a government that's consistently going to try to make your life difficult i think what the, you want to do as an investor in oil is just buy oil uh what i've done in my hedge fund is i've gone out to 2025 i've bought the december futures uh they're currently trading about 62 dollars uh whereas the front month is 87 i've also bought a futures calls options i believe uh that the 100 call option for december of 25 is mispriced dramatically and it could be a hundred bagger it's about a four dollar piece of paper right now uh and if oil goes to 500, I, it could go to 400. That, that, I, don't, I don't say that that's, you know, the most likely outcome, but there's a lot of outcomes where it goes above 100 and you get paid quite well for owning those. And you don't take any of the risk of actually operating an oil uh, company.
1: Wes, what do you think of uh, those aggressive calls there? The, uh, wh- where is oil going?
0: Well, you know, me and my macro economic prediction capability so i'm not really going to say anything uh but i would like to ask copy something so just because i get asked this a lot of times so i, I know your big uh bull on the uh, inflation is not transitory thesis what are other ways that they think people should be playing it to protect themselves against you know bedlam in in an inflationary environment
3: well, of course, the inflation isn't transitory. I mean, the Federal Reserve is talking about fighting inflation, yet here we are with uh, 0% interest rates and they're still printing money. I mean, how do you fight inflation if you're printing money? Like, it, it, they, they haven't even done anything. They just tapered a bit. It's uh, it, it's kind of hilarious, really. Um, so, look, how do you play inflation? Uh, most inflation, you know, in history is caused by uh, energy inflation and labor. Those are the two main components of inflation. Uh, labor, we know, is uh, seeing huge inflation. Uh, that's going to continue. I think that's actually good because, you know, the middle class and, uh, you know, they've kind of been left out of the boom over the last decade. I think it's a good thing. It gives them some uh, spending power, and it's probably going to be good for the U.S. economy, a little bit of inflation. The problem is you don't want a lot of inflation. The other piece you're going to see a lot of inflation, though, is energy, because that goes into the cost of pretty much everything in life. And that's why I keep thinking, and I've said this many times, the Federal Reserve won't actually do anything maybe we get 25 bips or 50 bips but they won't actually do anything till oil starts uh going parabolic and at that point they panic and so if you want to uh bet on inflation you should just bet on oil because um it's it's basically inflation you're one-to-one tied to inflation so that's how i'd bet on it obviously you know i think gold's going to do reasonably well uh you know the traditional inflation hedges uh, you know land real estate these things tend to do well but if you want a very levered way to play inflation those hundred calls the trade
0: yeah. what about you got anything uh what, what about on uranium i know you've been a you were a bull before that became cool but now that it's gone up a lot you got any uh, additional thoughts on that now
3: oh i'm absolutely a bull on uranium i mean when you think of uh, commodities uh, and why gold's uh, such a great investment, uh, gold's good during inflationary periods because the cost of producing gold goes up. And as the commodity, it tends to trade around the cost of producing it. So if the cost of producing it goes up, uh, the price has to go up. Otherwise, people stop producing it. And the same goes for uranium. If there's inflation, the cost of producing it should go up. What's different about uranium is that it is well below the cost of producing it, whereas gold is above the cost of producing it right now. Uh, Uranium, as I'm speaking to you, is about $45 a a pound. Uh, The world uses about 180 million uh, pounds of this stuff a year. This is almost all for nuclear. Um, The world produced about 150 million pounds of this stuff, about 125 from mining and about 25 from byproduct. And so there's about a 30 million gap. But demand for nuclear is going to grow dramatically over the rest of this decade and into the next decade. The Chinese are talking about building 150 nuclear power plants, All throughout Southeast Asia, they're building nuclear power. In the end, nuclear power is the logical baseload solution uh, if you want to have carbon-free energy. And uh, governments around the world have convinced themselves that they want to transition out of carbon. And uh, as the Europeans learned this year, sometimes it's not windy, windy and sometimes it's not snowing. I'm sorry, sometimes not sunny, sometimes not windy. And uh, you need backup. And uh, nuclear is the obvious backup solution. I mean, we've seen the French and uh, the English decide to uh, keep some uh, power plants on. that They were planning to turn off and to talk about building new ones. Illinois has done the same. I mean, the Germans have taken the other approach, and they're still shutting their nuclear power plants. And they're going to have fun staying cold. Uh, but... Um, I think nuclear is going to be a dramatically larger piece of global energy consumption going forward, and they're going to need uranium, and I don't know where uranium is going to come from, but uh, what I do know is that it's going to go above the cost to produce it because no one's going to turn a mine back on unless they can make money doing it. So if you buy uranium at 45 and the marginal cost is 65, let's say, it's got to get to 75 or 80 for anyone to turn their mine back on. And the history of commodities is that they tend to overshoot to the upside Uh, because people panic when they can't secure supply. I mean, a power plant without uh, uranium isn't very useful. It's a paperweight, really. And uh, we saw this last cycle. All the power plants panicked when the price started going up because they were worried they couldn't uh, secure any. And then they produced too much, and it was a glut. And then the price went below the cost of production, and all the producers went bankrupt. And that's why I love uh, commodities. They tend to overshoot in both directions. But uranium in particular tends to overshoot quite violently, and I think it's going to go to a couple hundred dollars a pound. Um, the other variable here is that there's this entity called uh, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Uh, the, the, the ticker is U-U uh, uh, in Canada, and it's uh, issuing shares to buy uranium. And if the price of uranium starts going up, I think retail investors will uh, get into this entity, and it'll issue a lot more shares. It'll buy up a lot more uranium, and it'll front-run these utilities. And I think that's going to lead to a dramatic overshooting of the price. I mean, we saw this with Bitcoin when Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was buying all the Bitcoins. And it took uh, about six months. And eventually they sort of cornered the free float. And the the price of Bitcoin was a five-bagger. And I I sort of see the same thing happening here. And I really do like uranium.
1: On the miner side, um, when you think about the – you mentioned gold as another place. And one of the inflation hedges is – is uh anything on what's happened in gold recently gold miners have been you know pretty terrible place for the last decade 15 years maybe longer um while gold has actually done okay in some of the periods gold miners have like really gone nowhere any any commentary are those companies getting better run or any other commentary on on the miner side of, of gold
3: so mining is probably one of the worst industries you could ever subject any investor capital to um You know, uh, it's just a terrible business. Even, you know, you have geology, you have uh, operating risks, you have uh, cost pressure risks. Um, I just think it's a terrible place to put your capital right now. Um, You know, if you think uh, the price of, uh, if if you think it's going to be inflation, the worst thing you want is a gold mine. Because all their costs, you know, labor, uh, steel, uh, cement, uh, especially uh, energy. These costs are all going up much more rapidly than the price of gold, and these companies are getting squeezed. Uh, at the same time, you have politicians that are looking at the price of gold and thinking these guys are making money, and they're going to change the tax regime at a time when these companies might be you know, losing money. I, I just think it's, it's crazy to invest in these mining companies. If you want to um, bet on gold going higher, you should just buy some gold. What's amazing about the capital markets is that there's very uh, liquid and deep uh, option chains and futures chains. You could put on very levered uh, call spreads and fund it by selling puts. There's a lot of things you can do if you want to take a directional view on the price of gold. I think the only thing you don't want to do is buy uh, gold miners.
1: (laughs) In terms of um – it, well, other big macro themes you, you talked a little bit about real estate uh I, I want to come to some of your your views on on where uh i, I know I've, I've been following some of your views on sort of florida real estate and, and ways to, to 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 focus on the migration to florida uh is that part of your thesis it got to be in a specific location of where where else might be good hedges and and real estate and florida florida real estate in particular might be a good place to go
3: yeah, I think Florida real estate is going to do outstanding. Uh, I mean, Florida real estate's been in a bull market for hundred years. Um, I, I don't see it stopping. And I see it just accelerating. In the end, uh, you have a lot of people leaving uh, high-cost, uh, mostly northeastern cities, also California, and they're moving to the south. The weather's better, uh, you know, the cost of living's lower, and the taxes are lower, which leads to better job opportunities. And so um, I think this migration, which has been going on, is actually accelerating. I mean, the demographic data would say that Florida had the most uh, net immigration uh, this year well, in, in 21. I think that's just going to keep happening. Um, you know, I own uh, shares of a company called St. Joe, the ticker is JOE. Uh, it's one of the largest owners of uh, land in the state of Florida, mostly the Florida Panhandle. Uh, they're seeing explosive growth in uh, demand for their land. Uh, they, they are selling lots to home builders, uh, home building being another terrible business like mining. Uh, they're selling the lots to the home builders, the finished lots, and they're selling those lots for pretty uh, astounding uh, profits, and then they're using the cash flow from uh, the lots to build commercial real estate. And the great thing about this is that the home builders are building the homes, bringing in mostly uh, high-income families that are then able to shop at these uh, retail locations that Joe is building. um, The problem always with uh, owning uh, St. Joe is that the Florida Panhandle isn't that well-populated. So, you know, it's chicken and egg. You want to build uh, something to service people, but there's no people. So you got to build something to service people. But, you know, no one wants to move there if there's nothing to do. Uh, And, you know, it's now uh, fixing itself as a center of gravity. And we're seeing just huge explosive growth. And you basically can buy uh, this land for about 25 cents on the dollar. You know, uh, stocks trading about 45 bucks. I think the shares are worth about 200. And uh, I think the land is worth about 200. And that land is growing in value quite rapidly each year. And so if you think that land is appreciating 20% a year, then you're basically making about $40 in your $45. That's a pretty good return. And there's a bunch of cash flow and retained earnings also that are just accruing to the balance sheet. Um, I don't know. It's one of my largest positions, so I'm obviously speaking my buck. But it's done well for me. I think it's going to do quite well in continuation. I think all uh, the home building uh, – Universal do well. Anyone who supplies products to uh, home building. I mean, the United States used to build over a million uh, single-family homes a year until 2008. Then we had the economic crisis and the crash, and home building kind of dried up because a lot of people lost money on their homes. But in the end, you know, the U.S. population keeps growing, and if you're going to produce six to eight hundred thousand homes a year, and you need over a million a year, there's going to be a catch-up. Suddenly we're back to producing uh, between a million and a million five a year. And there's five million uh, homes that need to be built because a lot of people my age uh, put off having kids a couple years more than the prior generation. And they're all having kids and you can't put two kids in a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Everyone's going to the suburbs and someone's got to build these homes.
1: And the pandemic has given us all the flexibility to work from anywhere. I mean, Wisdom Tree ourselves, we went remote first. I mean, I used to commute to New York two hours from Philly when I wasn't traveling around the world. Now, why am I getting on a plane when I could do everything via Teams or Zoom like we're doing now? And, uh, you know, you can live wherever. Like, why am I in the Northeast is a good question. I know Wes is asking me from Puerto Rico.
3: And I guess the next question is, uh, why are you in a place with state taxes? Come to Florida or Texas. You know, and I think that's what a lot of people have done, which is why Florida keeps booming. It's why Texas keeps booming. Tennessee keeps booming. I think you're going to see a lot of migration and someone's got to, you know, build these homes for people.
1: Are there other uh, plays besides Joe or is Joe the the prime opportunity in real estate for for that type of uh, type of play?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's the it's just unique in that, you know, they're having, uh, I mean, look, in the first half of the year, their revenue grew 100% year over year. Like, you don't get a chance to buy such a rapidly growing business that cheap. It just doesn't usually happen in the market. The markets usually look through this sort of stuff. Uh, I'd say, and I own another stock called Cornerstone, they're one of the largest producers. I mean, they, they are the largest producers of vinyl windows in the United States, but they're also one of the largest producers of sidings and stone facade and gutter. Um, Look, all these things go into a house, Uh, there's been a huge consolidation in the the, the people who produce this stuff, Uh, much like there's been consolidations in home builders, And so when you have consolidation, you get better margins, and Cornerstone, I think they're going to do better than 30% returns on capital, they're going to put three turns of debt on this. And I think they're going to do about 100% return on equity, the shares trade somewhere around three to four times cash flow. Uh, the limiting factor is they just can't add uh, workers fast enough to produce more of this stuff. They, can, they have enough machinery, they just can't add enough shifts. Um, but they'll get it all figured out. I mean, I hate investments where you know they, 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 the marketing guy talks about if we could just do this a little smarter, we could sell more product. Uh, you know, hear Cornerstone's telling you they have the, a backlog, they just don't know how to produce this stuff. And they'll figure out how to produce, and they'll make a lot of money. But if they don't figure it out, it's still quite cheap. I mean- three to four times earnings, or three to four times cash flow, I guess, which is the metric I like. That's a very cheap uh, stock.
1: We're talking with Harris Kupperman. We've got Wes Gray. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And we are just talking about a lot of Cuppy's views on inflation and, and oil and the budget of the commodities. Cuppy, I, one of the things you've also talked about is – is when you take some profits in after you have some big winners uh, and, and sort of the derivative of what we're talking about on, on oil is is some of the natural gas plays. You talked about one of the companies that was basically going to zero last year uh, and then have recently decided to take profits. Maybe talk through your sell decisions, how you decided uh, enough was enough in in this sort of natural gas idea and just sort of framework for, for selling more broadly there.
3: So, I mean... I'd say i'm pretty good at buying I'm, I'm less good at selling um you know you never really know how far something will go to the upside uh but the the stock market's this unique thing where if you have capital and you have a balance sheet you can buy you know there's always something happening in the world there's always someone who's making a mistake there's always a politician doing something crazy there's always news um the, the, the best opportunities come when you have cash and you can actually take advantage of those. And so when something gets to 70 or 80 cents on the dollar of what I think it's worth, I usually exit. Um, I leave a bit on the table because you know, I, I run a strategy that looks for multi-baggers and making five and 10 baggers is uh, how you put up big returns for your investors. And that extra 20% just isn't going to do anything useful. And I'd rather have the flexibility. So yeah, when I uh, feel like I've made enough, it's, it's time to roll into the next one.
1: Um in terms of things where you where you might have been surprised as you've done uh, when, for people following your track record it's been been a very good few years for you if there's been places where you think you judge things incorrectly any any places where you would say you overestimated certain
3: things or or any mistakes you'd call out I mean let's talk about a real expensive one um you know, I, I thought Tesla was overvalued at, you know, $250 a share. I thought the business was uh, a sham. Uh, I mean, the stock's at 800 a share, and they've had a stock split, or maybe two since then. <laughs> you know, um, it, when you short a stock, uh, it could go to any crazy price. I'm super thankful that I got out of the way when it started going higher, because if people are not going to ascribe, you know, normal valuation metrics to a company, and people are going to let uh, the company commit fraud blatantly in plain sight – then, um, you know, who's to say what price you can go to? And, you know, I think a lot of my friends, you know, I lost some money, but I got out of the way. A bunch of my friends uh, weren't smart enough to get out of the way. The stock went up 10 or 20 times or something. And, I mean, even a small position gets very expensive when it starts moving like that. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, something that people need to keep learning. Uh, you know, on a long, especially if you uh, do your research well, maybe it goes 10 or 20 percent against you. On a short, it can go to any price. And, I've seen people get taken out of the game on even very small short positions.
1: Wes, that's one of the things. A lot in your factor, academic factor world, there's all people always talk about long shorts. Uh, any, anything you see on the short side in in recent times, have you questioning? I like, can't, can't. Are people? I, I wonder if anything's changed in the short dynamics with the meme stocks and the Reddit people and all and all that that you're seeing there.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think without a doubt. I don't think a lot of people would expect GameStop to go one hundred x or AMC because a bunch of boneheads on Reddit are pumping it. that That just doesn't seem right, but it happened. and And as you know, when when you do the back test, you're not actually running a margin book. You're not actually worrying about you know getting your shorts recalled. It's just on paper. It looks amazing. But as you guys probably know, like when you're running an actual short book and you deal with actual reality, to Cuppie's point, you know, things can get a lot worse before they get better. So I've never been a I, – I did that – you know, I launched a hedge fund in September 2008. You know, good timing. And I was actually market neutral. And then a month later, they're like, oh, you can't actually short anymore. I was like, great. Uh, All <laughs> you know, strategies dependent on being able to be long and short. It, you know, you don't backtest. They just outlaw your ability to short. So, I mean, I don't know. I've never been a fan of it to Cuppy's point it, it could be a lot riskier than people think. And, you know, once you've been burnt by fire, sometimes you just stop wanting to get burnt. And, and when you think about shorting, do
1: you, do you, how often, or do you have, do you run a consistent short book, or is it sort of more tactical in terms of what you're thinking about? do you find things that you think are wildly overvalued and, and you, and you play it for, for as long as you can.
3: Oh, I just don't short. Um, you know, going back to what Wes said, uh, we saw a bunch of lunatics on our Reddit board take uh, insolvent movie uh, cinema chain and take it to what was it like 50 times, 60 times it went up. Um, if you had a one percent position, you'd have lost half your net worth. Uh, you know, we saw you know a uh, bankrupt, uh, well I guess failing ball retailer. What did it go from like three dollars to 500? Like. I like risks. I understand. You never know when some Reddit subgroup suddenly just gets excited for something. It's, it's too hard. You can't predict it. So I like the stuff that's uh, predictable and the stuff that uh, I have an edge in.
1: In terms of other themes, we've talked about housing inflation, some uranium miners. Are are there any other major themes that you're 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 excited about today?
3: No, not really. I think um, you know. I'm a very thematic investor. Um, there's times when there's a lot to do. There's times like right now where the Federal Reserve has told you they're raising interest rates, or at least pretending to. Uh, these are moments where uh, risk assets tend to sell off, and uh, you want to have a bit less exposure, and you want to be a bit more uh, nimble and flexible. Look, uh, we've already seen, like we talked about, the Tiger 40 and the ARCs get hit. Um When you have a sell-off, eventually uh, good companies get hit, too. There's going to be something really exciting to do. I I know there's always something exciting to do. And so I'm going to wait and see who gets hurt. And someone always gets hurt. And, you know, someone has to sell at the low, and there's going to be opportunities. So I've taken the exposure back a little, and I'm waiting for the next good fame. Yeah, copy. this is Wes. i got
0: a question for you. We'll spice it up a little bit. Uh, What are your thoughts on crypto? That's that's kind of uh... (laughs) – A new theme out there. You mentioned gold. A lot of people say gold's worthless because Bitcoin is digital gold. What, what's your thoughts?
3: I think there's a useful uh, place for crypto. Um, you know, I, I, there's a couple thousand of these things. I don't know what all of them do. Uh, I don't think anyone does. But, you know, speaking of Bitcoin, I, I see it, you know, adoption's been impressive. And when you have adoption like that, it, it becomes, a, you know, viable as a medium of exchange. Uh, it has many well-known flaws, and I'm sure we'll uh, discover new flaws. But, uh, you know, I think it's going to be part of the future, uh, blockchain in particular and crypto. What's the right price for Bitcoin? I have absolutely no idea. Um, you know, I, I bought it when I saw a Grayscale Bitcoin Trust starting to buy it all up at 9200 I sold mine at 58000 I'd like to buy it back in, but I'm waiting for the right pullback or the right moment uh, it just doesn't feel right right now but uh, no I, I, I lean positively towards crypto it, it's exciting I guess uh, Jeremy going back to you know your, your question of what do you do right now I, I kind of want to you know make the point that um, sometimes it's best to do nothing and sit with some extra liquidity but when you're sitting with like extra liquidity and you still want to make some money uh i have a pretty uh, active event-driven trading strategy uh you know I, i'm usually following uh, about 25 corporate events fund flow events there's rather predictable uh, events that happen in the world that you can make uh, short-term uh, trading gains out of and um you know i've been doing that with my excess capital it's been working well for me especially in a volatile market and um i, I don't know if i'm allowed to pitch a product on your show but i'd say to Uh, For all readers that want to uh, track event-driven strategies, go to uh, KEDM.com and and take a free trial. Um, You know, we built this because we wanted it for ourselves to go trade. And, uh, uh, you know, I think if you uh, log in and take a look at what we're doing with these uh, strategies we're tracking, I think you'll find some value in it. I know I have.
1: You know, it's interesting. I was, when you were a free subscriber there, I was tracking that very closely uh, every week. And I thought it was a pretty interesting Concept. This might be a nice transition to talk to Wes about a few different topics too. Um, when, when, uh, so, uh, Wes, one of your businesses is white labeling ETFs. Um, and so, you know, Cuppy's thing now is like a, a, uh, a newsletter it gives a bunch of different ideas. And I actually thought the idea of Cuppy, you should create that into a basket product that people can trade. Uh, and, uh, Wes, you guys are helping people do that in terms of creating different baskets. How's that white labeling? business going what are the types of people coming to your your white label your white label from there
0: pretty much everybody uh <laughs> at this point so it, as you know once the dust settled on the etf tax deal uh, it, it showed up in the bills like hey we might want to you know you know not allow this anymore once that comes off the table all of a sudden our phones start lighting up and as you can imagine, everyone on the planet that manages money with the appropriate asset class would like to get into the ETF wrapper, right? So you've got SMAs that want to convert, hedge funds that want to convert, um, mutual funds that want to convert, and then there's also just good old-fashioned entrepreneurs. So you know, like in a situation here, like on the the KEDM, which is an awesome uh, newsletter by the way. it's... You, know, you could do something like that. You could take these pool of ideas, and to the extent they had enough liquidity and capital, you know, you could always launch a, a ETF on it. But, but as you know, a lot of the the ideas on that newsletter, in particular, are you know, for the most part, they you know, they may not be appropriate for an ETF or being able to jam billions upon billions of dollars into it. So, you know, ETF is definitely not for every single investment strategy. But because people like having access to the tax deferral component of an ETF, we're seeing massive activity in that space. Like we could literally triple our, well, I've already signed up just for this year, 28 days in, you know, contracts that will triple our ETF business Uh, (laughs) that have been doing for 10 years. And in 28 days, you know, I've already signed contracts that would triple it. So, you know, I would say it's white hot at the moment.
1: Well, that's exciting. Um, where, where are there? Is there themes there? Of is it just all the above of the SMAs, the mutual funds, and all these things, or is there is there a type of person who's who's coming uh, more aggressively?
0: Uh, most of it's yeah, mutual funds converting. Basically, it's people that already have assets in place, and their clients are essentially demanding, you know, better tax efficiency, more transparency, like all all the things that you know people who have been in the ETF industry, like yourself, have been you know touting for you know twenty years now. Uh, This is just a better wrapper for a strategy. And so they they just need to figure out how to move from their current legacy wrapper into the ETF structure. And so that's where all the assets, all the money is coming. There's there's always the entrepreneurs out there that are going to launch a product. And we'll obviously help them because we we came out of that world for a long time. And and we're not going to like shut the doors on, on somebody, but it, obviously, from our perspective, it's a lot less risky when someone shows up and says, "Hey, I got 500 million dollars in the bank that I'd like to make an ETF with," versus, "Hey, I've got an idea and I, I want to go try to get you know five million dollars in the bank."
1: Like, yes. So,
0: so we we much prefer, from a risk perspective, people that already have ideas and place and capital in place versus uh, you know entrepreneurial ideas. But we'll, we'll listen to every pitch that
1: anyone has. Cup you can to ever an ETF ever in your cards. You could you could take some of your ideas, put it into an ETF?
3: <laughs> I don't know. I never want to say never. Uh Wes and I actually chatted about it. I I think the problem is that from the event driven stuff, uh, it's just not the liquidity. I mean, the the whole point of the event driven is that someone else has a liquidity issue and has to do something dumb, often because you know, like, like take a spinoff, okay? Um, that, that's when a company, you know, shareholders of a company get new shares. And the ETF has a set rule that says, I'm not supposed to own this stock, so I have to sell it day one. Well, that creates this momentary misbalance between supply and demand, which is what people like me take advantage of. But if you had a decent amount of capital doing this, there, there would be no advantage there. So I don't think it would fit into an ETF, but I, I never want to say never. Maybe Wes and I will team up and do something fun in the future.
1: Keeping the options like open. Um, Wes, what what else uh, are, are you seeing at in in your world? You look at a lot of the value and momentum as we started the show. As as uh, is is any any particular thing? Are You yeah, just talking I think, value?
0: No, I, I think I think the the big themes that are hot out there, at least from advisors and, and people in the marketplace, like like what are they looking at? What are they excited about? It's frankly, it's a lot of things we've been talking about. Like like most people are like, holy cow you know, they're lying to me. This inflation is not transitory because I'm living it every day and my clients are pissed off. How do we, you know, put products in place and, and use investment vehicles that'll actually protect me if if we engage in this, you know, what a uh, cuppy calls Project Zimbabwe, uh, which sounds like the path we're going down. So, so that, that's a big thing that's out there. Um, and then obviously, like tax efficiency is always a big thing because even though it seems like a lot of the tax discussions that kind of like got settled, you know, just the fact that there was a lot of these proposals that were kind of ridiculous, like, let's just double taxes for everybody. I think people are super sensitive (laughs) to trying to, you know, find ways to avoid that, which is an evergreen thing to have. Um, And then like to your point in factors in particular investment strategies, momentum was hot and then arc blew up and the Ponzi sector blew up. It's all of a sudden like momentum or growthy or or thematics, which were the talk of the town. Everyone's like, yeah, hey, I don't want to do that. Tell me about this value stuff. And, and we're like, well, sure. You, you want to actually talk about value, or like, like, are you joking right now? Because uh, we're just you know we're so used to you know ten years of people like value stupid, value doesn't work. Why do you care about free cash flow? And it does really seem to be the case that you know buyers and investors are actually interested in you know, paying attention to fundamentals again, which obviously we think is awesome. But, you know,
3: I've been thinking that for way
0: too long. Uh,
3: <laughs> uh, so It's awesome. I, I can't wait for fundamentals to matter again. I actually can use my edge as opposed to getting run over by a Reddit room.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so we'll see. It's, it's funny. I actually did a podcast the other day. It's a former Marine. Uh, so, I, so I figured, hey, I'd, I'd help the guy out. And And the whole podcast and the whole business revolves around AMC and GameStop and fighting the man, right? Like being those natural short sellers and how they can coordinate and manipulate the market to kind of put Citadel out of business. And and I just told him, I was like, listen, I am all about fighting the man. But when you're not only fighting Citadel, but literally like trillions upon trillions in the entire financial, like global financial market system, you guys are not gonna win in the end. they will change the rules if you if you work <laughs> if it worked too well and I was just try to explain to them like hey i I love what you're trying to do, and it's you know it's oppressive, but why like I said, it's just crazy so you know you know they, but they were they're believers uh and clearly they have impact you know well beyond what at least I would ever thought possible from a message board so
1: uh, in terms of other things that, that uh, Alpha Architect is focused on, what are you guys, uh, what do you guys, besides the white label business, other, uh, you guys do, you guys were doing some commodity strategies. We're talking about inflation or are we seeing pickup interest in those at all or is it uh, mostly just the and, ETF yeah. world?
0: No, I mean, mainly ETF. I mean, we do, yeah, we do all that stuff. We run like managed futures and trend follow commodities but that stuff's very esoteric and hard to explain. Um, so you know, It's kind of like you know, trial by combat, you show up, we'll tell you about it. Great. If not, then we're not going to bore you with it. Um, another big thing we always do, it's just actually still hot. That's actually also white hat or white hot. Sorry. is in like the ESOP space. Uh, So we're always doing like 1042, uh, QRP transactions. Um, so a lot of business there, just ESOPs are a big theme where there's a lot of, you have a lot of like legacy owners that, They've been running a business for 30, 40 years, and, you know, it's kind of like their community, and they don't want to sell it to private equity because they know what happens there. They fire everybody. You know, the community is destroyed. And and so they're looking for alternative ways to basically transition their business. And and ESOPs are, you know, I think a pretty good solution, and and we have an uh, an investment approach that helps people in that space if you're a a selling founder. Um, Um, But, again, super esoteric, boutique. You know I don't even like talking about it because uh' <laughs> very special too in the weeds, but yeah, but mainly making ETFs and uh you know we got our own ETFs so that's pretty much what we focus on.
1: Any other model portfolio development a lot of people come to us looking for solutions. I know you guys have been thinking a little bit more about building models, working with a few different people on building unique combinations of models any any updates there?
0: Yeah, of course. Like, and I think it revolves around a lot of themes, a lot of stuff that, uh, Cuffy's talking about where, you know, people are looking for how do they use their capital efficiently. And I know there's different products out there, for example, that you can access like a 60 40 portfolio, but, you know, more efficiently through an ETF. We're not going to name tickers or anything. Um, but, but a lot of times if you use, you know, cheap leverage and capital efficiency of futures, you, you know, you can have a lot of opportunity to play in, in things like, you know, Uh, event-driven situations, uncorrelated strategies, trend-falling, and the like. So I I think capital efficiency, in in particular how you build models that exploit that, is is certainly a hot topic right now just because there's not a lot of juice in anything, right? Like, hey, what do you think the return on S&P is going to be over the next 20 years? Uh, Probably around zero. Uh, (laughs) It's not not going to be that bad. bad. Maybe it's not that bad, but you get my point. Like, it's not going to be... 20% 20% annual growth rates or whatever it's been over the past 10 years, you know, it's probably going to be closer to zero than 20. Um, and, and because of that environment, you know, in, in expectation, people are just trying to think about how do they use their capital more efficiently to try to access risk and reward in a smart way. Uh, so, and of course the models are all, you know, you need to build models that hopefully accommodate that. Um cuppy so any final closing thoughts? You go to
1: Ketum and for Adventures in Capitalism to find more on your work. Any other closing thoughts as we wrap up the
3: program? I think, I think my, my main closing thought is that it's gonna be a very volatile uh, year coming up. I think there's a lot of guys that have had uh strategies that work for the last decade that are about to learn that in an inflationary environment it doesn't work. I think risk parity is gonna blow up. I think a lot of these uh you know High multiple, compounder bros are going to learn that the the right multiple is a lot lower. And I think there's going to be a lot of fireworks. And I I guess my warning to everyone is to take your exposure down, take your leverage down, because when someone else gets in trouble, there's going to be great opportunities. And you want to be the one who's uh, buying from a distressed seller. You don't want
1: to be the distressed seller. Well, on that note, I want to thank Cuppy West for coming on Behind the Market. It's been been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I'm Jeremy Schwartz been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.